If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to the book of Joshua. We will continue on our study of this great Old Testament story of God's greatness and his power. We will pick up at the end of chapter 5 and then work our way through chapter 6. Before we look at it, let's, uh, let's ask the Great One to be with us as we study. Uh, Father, we have just sung of, of your power, of your majesty. And in these times when, if we are not careful, we can think this world is spinning out of control, we need to be reminded that it is not. You are the king. You have instilled sovereign lordship over heaven and earth to your son, Jesus, who sits at your right hand. And everything that happens is under his command. We don't know. We don't know the full battle plan, at least all the intimate details. We don't know all that you're doing. But Lord, would you remind us from this word today that you are in control, that you do have a plan that you are executing, and you call us to be faithful and to trust you. So remind us again of your greatness through your servant Joshua, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we left off back in mid-December in our Joshua series. We, we left off with the nation of Israel right on the, the Canaan side of the land of Canaan, of, of the Jordan River, if you recall. Uh, these people had spent several decades wandering in the wilderness because the first time they came to the edge of the promised land, they didn't believe that God could give them that land, and so God sent the nation of Israel to wander around in the desert in, in judgment until that generation had died. The next generation was brought now right to the edge, and then God parted the Jordan River for them to walk through, and they did. They came to the other side, and the manna stopped, and they ate the first fruits of the promised land. They celebrated Passover. They went through covenant renewal with circumcision, and now they are ready to take the land God had promised to their forefather Abraham hundreds of years prior. So that's where we left off. And we left off in the, toward the end of chapter 5. So now we pick up, and Joshua, the, the leader of Israel, is off by himself and probably, he doesn't say this, but I think it's safe to assume, he is formulating a battle plan. That's what military leaders do, as he knows battle is ensuing. And so he's probably getting lay of the land, trying to figure out the, the best strategy to take his people into this land. We pick up in chapter 5, verse 13, and we read this. It came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. Behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? So imagine that he's, 
he's pondering, he's thinking, maybe he's praying, he's kind of looking down and he happens to raise his head and here is a, a military man, a soldier with sword drawn. <laughs> well, that got his attention. And Joshua has a simple question for him. Whose side are you on? Are you here to fight me, to fight us? Or are you here to fight our enemies? The response is a little different than he expected. He said, no. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Now, if you have the NIV, it says, rather than no, it says neither. There is a textual variant in the Hebrew. Uh, the, the word he says is low. That's the Hebrew word, low. But there's two different Hebrew letters that are attached to the next one, and uh, it's possible that it means he said to him. Because there are two words, low. One means to him, the other one means no. And uh, the story is, as this has passed down, some think scribes maybe ch changed it up. We don't know exactly. It doesn't really matter. I don't think neither is the right one. But either way, the response is not what Joshua thought. He's, he doesn't exactly answer the question. He simply says, you're thinking about this all wrong, Joshua. It's not as simple as which side I'm on. You need to know who I am. And who I am is the captain of the host of the Lord. The host of the Lord. What do you think of when you think of host? You think of uh, a game show? You think of uh, the, the person who's going to uh, serve you well as they invite you into their home? But when you read the word host in the Bible, we're talking about an army. That's what host means in the Bible, an army. Do you realize that God has an army? An army of military warriors? As we were studying this this week, Dan and Eric came over as they always do on Friday and we were talking through this and, and we were discussing how we know this theologically, we know this biblically, but how often do we forget that God has a standing army of these powerful, angelic creatures ready to do his bidding? We see it over and over again in the scripture. We saw it at Christmas time. Remember, we went over this. At the, at the Luke 2, the, the Christmas story, at the birth of Jesus, the shepherds are out in the darkness at night, and the angel of the Lord and the Shekinah glory shows up in all of its brilliance, and, and he says, uh, uh, a Savior has been born for you, and then a host, not of cute, pudgy angels like Clarence, but a host, an army, a glorious, terrifying army appears in the sky and they shout with an army cry glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among men with whom God is pleased it was thunderous it was loud remember another occasion when uh, when Jesus is arrested in the garden of Gethsemane and Peter pulls out his little dagger and he starts swinging and he hits this one guy and knocks off his ear. And Jesus says, that's cute, Peter, but put, put your sword back in, in its sheath there. Don't you understand? I could ask my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to come if he wanted me to not be arrested. Think about it. A legion was 6,000 soldiers. 
just asked the Lord, my, my father would send 12 legions. Do you remember the story a little bit later from Joshua here when Elisha, the prophet of God, he has his servant along with him and they're in a house and they look out and they are surrounded by an enemy army. And Elisha is just, he's just playing it cool. He's just, he's not worried at all. And the servant is getting really agitated, really scared. Like he looks out, he starts counting. There's a bunch of them out there. He's like, Master, what, why aren't you upset? What, we're in trouble. And Elijah says, no, we're not. Well, what do you mean we're not? Oh, there are more of us than there are them. The guy looks out, he's like, one, two, three, four, he's counting hundreds of soldiers. And he looks at Elijah, he's like, one, two. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, seven. Hundreds. One, two. What do you mean there are more of us than there are of them? And Elisha prays, Lord, Open his eyes to see. And now he looks out, and there is a massive army surrounding the enemy army. Well, who are they? It's the host of God, the host of the Lord. It's fascinating to think about. There is this entire realm of existence around us that we can't perceive. And it's all through the scriptures. This angelic realm, we, we, we tend to think quickly about the demonic realm for some reason. We don't seem to have any problem believing and thinking that there are these, these evil spiritual beings around and they're trying to influence us and they're leading us into temptation and, and all of that but we sort of forget there's this whole other category of spiritual beings that the scripture says are made to serve us, to minister to believers, to those who will inherit salvation. That's the way the book of Hebrews describes them. In the, in the Psalms, they are ministering spirits. They are servants of the Lord. They're not cute. They're not pudgy. They don't have halos, anything like that. They don't have wings. They're mighty warriors, but their purpose is to serve us, to protect us, to bring about the will of God. And I don't know all that that entails. The Bible doesn't tell us every aspect of what angels are doing. But the point is, when God is ready to do his work on planet Earth, he has massive armies of these angelic creatures ready to fight the battle. He's the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. And Joshua hears him say that. Who are you? Are you for us? Are you for them? He says, no, 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 you got it all wrong. I am here to do the work of God because I command his armies. Think about that as you ponder what's going on in our world, as you ponder the battles that we are engaged in, we are never alone. And we know God is with us. We know he sent his spirit. And he's also sent warriors to fight for us. So Joshua hears this, and he immediately understands what this means, and he has the proper response Joshua fell on his face to the earth 
and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? When this man says to Joshua, I'm the captain of the Lord of hosts, Joshua now perceives this is not even just an angel of angels. This is the Lord himself. And he gets on his face before him. Now, I'm not going to go on to all the technical reasons why I think this, but I'm convinced this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ himself. If that's true, do you realize what we have here is Joshua coming face to face with the ultimate Joshua. Remember, we've talked about this. The, the Greek word Jesus is the same as the Hebrew word Joshua. You could call Joshua Jesus, or you could call Jesus Joshua, and you'd be right. Can you imagine? The capital J, the ultimate leader of God's people here face to face with the Jewish leader of God's people in the Old Testament. Here he is and he falls on his face and he says the right thing. What does my master have to say to me? When you're before God himself, for instance, when you're reading his word, what is the proper posture? What does my master have to say to me? What does my king, my Lord, have to say to me? We are not the master of his word. His word is the master of us. How many Christians have got themselves in trouble by saying, oh no, I'm going to decide what this says? Rather than saying, no, I submit to the, to the word of my king. I'm here to do your bidding. You are not here to do my bidding. And then the Lord of hosts says this to him, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, there's a couple of things going on here. Number one, he is simply telling Joshua, yes, I am who you think I am. I am God and you happen to be before the Holy One. You need to show the proper reverence. Take off your sandals. But he's doing something else, too. We've seen this movie before, haven't we? Joshua knows this occurred one other time. Remember back a few decades, Joshua's, his, his mentor, Moses, is out minding his own business. He's shepherding his sheep. He's trying to get away from the action. He'd had enough action in Egypt. He wants to just live the simple life. And God calls him, I'm going to trip on that thing. God calls him from a, a burning bush. He's out with his sheep and he sees a bush on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And so he walks over to check it out. And a voice comes out of the bush. It's the voice of God. And he says, Moses, you're standing on holy ground. Now why? Because Moses had just found this one little spot in all the earth that happened to be holy? No, it was only holy because God was there at that moment in a manifest form. And he says, take off your sandals and show reverence to me. 
Well, what God is doing here with Joshua is saying, I'm calling you to lead my people just as I called Moses. He's already promised him, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. And now he's giving him a repeat experience. Put Moses in the past. Remember how this book started? Moses, my servant, is dead. Joshua, next man up, go. You're on holy ground. I am the Lord. I will lead you. You just obey me. You just trust me. You remember that I am the Holy One, and I'll take care of you. And Moses, or Joshua takes off his sandals. Then we get into chapter 6. Now Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. The Lord said to Joshua, so he's still there, and now the Lord is giving the battle plan. See, I've given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. And here's the battle plan. Now, here's what we expect to happen. He says, okay, Joshua, I want you to find your, your commanding officers, maybe divide up the army in four or five segments. Some of you go around the right flank. Some of you go around the left flank. We're going to surround the city. We're going to create battering rams so we can knock down the gates. We're going to create ramps so we can get on top of the wall, maybe have someone prepared to shoot fire in and start burning down the city. You ready? Because this is how we're going to take the city. That's not the battle plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. There's your battle plan. March around the city, carry the ark of the covenant, blow your horn. That's how we're going to take the city. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn and when you hear the sound of the trumpet and all the people shall shout with a great shout that the wall of the city will fall down flat and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Now, if you're Joshua, and then a little bit later Joshua has to go explain the plan to the people, what are you thinking? Wait, tell me again what the battle plan is? We're going to walk around the city, and then we're going to shout, and that's how we're going to take it? Joshua, you sure you heard that right? I mean, at what point do we attack? Uh, Shouldn't we be making preparations for, for fighting? I mean, that's, that's, we're going to have to fight, right? The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days. Now, we know from the rest of Joshua, we'll see this in weeks to come, these people will have to do a lot of battling, a lot of fighting, and they will have battle plans, more traditional battle plans. But here at the beginning of occupying the promised land, the Lord shows up and says, I'm going to fight this one for you. I'm going to do the heavy lifting. That's why I've brought my army with me, so that I will build your faith for the future battles. All I want you to do is trust me. 
walk around the city and blow the ram's horns and watch what I will do for you. And to their credit, they did. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed from your mouth until the day I tell you, Shout, then you shall shout. So he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. I wonder what was going on through the minds of these Jewish people, these Israelites, these soldiers, as they marched around day after day. They did this for six days. I wonder what was going on in the minds of the Jerichoites. Right? They were frightened. We've already read, we've seen, their hearts were melting. They had heard what the God of Israel had done to Egypt, to other nations. They realize that on one day, the people of Israel are on that side of the Jordan, and they wake up the next day, and they are on this side of the Jordan. So they're terrified. And then the army starts marching, and you can imagine the Jericho soldiers on, on top of the wall watching and saying, okay, everybody over here, get ready, here comes the attack. Oh, no, they didn't hit that gate. All right, everybody over to this side, this gate. Get ready for the attack. Oh, no, they're not. Oh, just follow them around. And then they go camp. You know the worst part about really hard battles is the anticipation. Now, I've never fought. I don't know anything about being in the army, but I've read that it's the, the leading up to the engagement that is by far the most terrifying. Once you are in the battle, your adrenaline kicks in, you go, but it's the anticipation. Now, I haven't been there, but I, I kind of know on the other end, uh, when my children would disobey, it happened once or twice-ish. Uh, I always send them to the bathroom to wait for their discipline. And the more intense the infraction, the longer I would wait to go in the bathroom. So if it was one of the really big offenses against dad, I might sit out there for 15 or 20 minutes. Now what's going on in the mind of my child waiting in the bathroom for dad to come? Uh-oh, this is gonna be the big one, right? This is, this is gonna be intense. That anticipation will drive you crazy. Well, imagine what it was like for the soldier of Jericho watching. They're, they're, they're quiet except for the horns. They're, they're not doing anything other than marching and blowing the horns. 
and you're just watching these soldiers march around the city, and then they go back to camp, and, and now you're on alert again all night. Thinking, are they going to come at night? What are they going to do? Oh, here they come. They're marching. All right, we're ready to fight. And they just go around the city, blowing the horns, and then they go back to their camp. And six days of this, and they're terrified, and it's somber. Then on the seventh day, they arose early at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. At the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpet, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city shall be under the ban, and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble in it. You realize what's going on here, right? This is Joshua. He's, he's, I, I, we just watched Lord of the Rings over Christmas break. And remember that scene where Aragorn is, is riding up and down, screaming and hollering and getting his people ready, his soldiers ready to fight and says, there may come a day when, when man will lose, but today is not that day. Or Braveheart. As, uh, as what's his name, is riding back and forth. Can't remember, what's his name? W- William who? Wallace, thank you. As William Wallace is riding him down, and he's, he's, he's rousing the troops to go attack. That's, that's what Joshua was doing. He's saying, we're going to go in there, we're going to fight, we're going to win, and don't take any of this stuff because it all belongs, belongs to God. But all the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout. And the wall fell down flat. Who knocked down the wall? The angels the host, the army that the Lord had sent. Y'all are thinking about singing a song, aren't you? Is that our closing song today, Jordan? Josh fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man, woman, young and old, ox and sheep and donkey, with the edge of the sword. Joshua said that the two men who had spied out the land go to the harlot's house and bring the woman and all she has out of here as you have sworn to her. So the young men who were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brothers and all she had. They also brought out all her relatives and placed them outside the camp of Israel. They burned the city with fire and all that was in it. Only the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. However, Rahab the harlot and her father's household and all she had, Joshua spared And she has lived in the midst of Israel to this day, for she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Then Joshua made them take an oath at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord is the man who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. With the loss of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundations. With the loss of his youngest son, he shall set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. 
If you continue reading the Old Testament, you will see that indeed someone did try to rebuild Jericho at the cost of his firstborn, just as Joshua had said and, and the other prophecy as well. Joshua and these Israelites trusted the Lord. Like I said, the writer of Hebrews says, by faith the walls fell down. Now they had to go in and, and do the work they were called to, but the walls came down. The entry into the city was by faith. They trusted God. It's been a week. All of you who thought, you know, we transitioned from 2020 to 2021. Ah, fresh start. 2020 is over. We got this now, 2021, and 2021 says, oh yeah, hold my beer. It's been a week, and there doesn't seem to be any slowdown. There doesn't seem to be any respite on the near horizon. I don't know, and you don't know. But it doesn't look like things are going to get slower and less intense anytime soon. And we don't know the answers to the questions that we have. I want to encourage you again. You can't trust the media to tell you the truth. Do not allow biased businesses to whip you up into a frenzy on any side of the things going on. We cannot trust what we're being told. Everybody has an agenda. And all the things we warned ourselves of this last summer, we're seeing the dangers of an ideology that hates Christianity. I need to remind you again, this is not from our perspective, this is not about patriotism. We happen to be on the same side as the, the conservatives in our nation because we have a common enemy. The left wants to destroy Christianity because they want to destroy civilization. But we don't tattoo flags on our bodies. Uh, I'm not going to get to that. We're not here primarily about conservative politics. We're about Jesus Christ. But there is an ideology that has set itself up against Christianity. And what we've seen in the last couple days is they want to shut down speech from anybody that disagrees with them. And right now it's political. But if they're allowed to do that, guess what's coming? They're going to say, you can't talk about Jesus out in public. You can't bring Christian truth and God's law into the public square. It's happened over and over again in history, and this is what they want. And they have the power of the sword to enforce their ideology. What do we do? We have to trust the Lord. We do what we can do, but at the end of the day, we trust the Lord. As the church, we don't take up arms. 
The sword has not been given to the church, it's been given to the state. So we don't go marching around with our weapons, taking people out. I'm not talking about self-defense, that's another discussion. I'm talking about attacking, physically attacking those who disagree with us. That is not the place of the church. We trust the Lord of hosts to fight the battle when and how he chooses. We fight with weapons that are not of man, not of this world. We fight with the truth of Jesus Christ. We proclaim the gospel, and we stand firm on what we believe, even if it costs us. In this case, God is bringing his people into the promised land, and they are going to have complete victory. His people are going to conquer every enemy, and they're going to occupy the promised land for a while. Is that what God has for us as the church? Are we going to conquer everything that stands against Christ right here, right now in our day? We don't know. We don't know what the next day, weeks, months looks like. You know me. I'm very optimistic in the long run. Even before Jesus comes back, I'm optimistic about the expansion of the kingdom of God. But that does not mean it's all straight up. I don't know. You don't know. What do we do? We trust him. And we hold fast to the things we do know. This is what I was talking about this week in the video I sent out. We know what we are called to do. Redeem the time. Live well and pleasing to the Lord. I'm struck by Hebrews. Hebrews that I just quoted a little bit ago, where Joshua is used an example of the great faith chapter, chapter 11, where the writer goes through all these men and women who were great people of faith and the, the amazing things that they did. Handling lions and defeating lions and, and defeating enemies and all those things and walls falling down in Jericho. And then after all these amazing stories of faith, do you remember the practical application the writer of Hebrews brings to the church? It's very simple. Be, fair, be, be faithful in your marriage. Don't love money. Come together and offer a sacrifice of praise regularly to our Lord. Sing and worship. Submit to your elders. Very basic stuff that is true in every age of the church. I find that fascinating. We tend sometimes to get all aroused thinking, we got to go do something. Well, but there may come a time for us to do more. But we know the basics of all, for all of us is just do what Christ has called us to do. Be faithful. Be faithful, men and women. Be faithful in your work. And trust the Lord of hosts to win the battle when he's ready. That's hard. Because sometimes he says, my people need to suffer for a little while before I bring victory. And in that list in Hebrews 11, there were plenty of people who by faith were cut in half, literally by a sword. So it wasn't all victory, historically speaking. But what happens when our enemies take our lives? 
we get ultimate victory. We go be with Jesus. So stay firm, remain faithful, do what our king has called us to do. Trust him. The other storyline of this chapter is the contrast between Rahab and the inhabitants of Jericho. Remember at the beginning of chapter 6 I read it said the city of Jericho was tightly shut, no one in or out. The king of Jericho had heard of the Israelites, he knew of the God of Israel, and he was terrified of them, again their hearts were melting. And what was his response to this, this nation led by this powerful God? His response was, I want nothing to do with you, stay out. Why not send a delegation out to try to negotiate terms of peace? Maybe that God will be merciful to us. No, we're going to stand, we're going to fight, we're going to rebel against that God. We're going to try to resist him. But there was one very shrewd woman in Jericho. She runs into the Israelites, the two spies, and she says, hey, I will save you from my king if you will save me from your God. She believed that that God was the real God. And she said, when you guys come and your God gives you victory, and he will, remember me and save me. So here's this prostitute, as we talked about weeks ago, the lowest on, the, on the, the rank of people we think would receive mercy, humanly speaking. And just like Jesus associated with the lowest ranks in his day, God saves Rahab and her household. Why? Because she welcomed the God of Israel. She believed in the God of Israel. She didn't shut her house tightly and say, no, we will stand and fight. She said, I, I want to serve him. And God was faithful to do what he promised, and Joshua was faithful to do. And he said, when we come take the city, you save Rahab and her family. Because she believes. Which, of course, is a great metaphor, a great illustration of the ultimate Joshua and the ultimate salvation. We're all Rahab. And God shows up and says, I have power and I have holy wrath far beyond what the Jerichoites received and you deserve that wrath. But if you'll be like Rahab and believe in me, I will save you and forgive you. There's a hard, hard truth in that chapter that I skipped over because we're going to come back to it next week and the week after because it's a common theme throughout the rest of Joshua. God brings his righteousness on these inhabitants of Jericho, and it's sobering. And it's going to be hard. Well, it, it, even theologically, we know this is true. It's sobering when you realize what God called the Jews to do to the inhabitants of Canaan. But it's not nearly as sobering as the truth of God that says all of us are going to stand before him at judgment. And in our sin, we deserve eternal wrath. Not just dying here on earth, not just some years of pain and then it's all over, but eternal judgment because we are sinners. As I say, we are all Rahab. 
Maybe you haven't committed the same sins Rahab did, but whatever sins you and I have committed are just as bad. And we deserve the wrath of God in the same way. And he sent the ultimate Joshua to us to die on a cross. And he was dead for three days. He came back to life. And he said, if you believe in me, if you will trust me, if you will call upon my name, I will save you, not from every trial in this life, but from eternal judgment. We can live forever in glory, in paradise. The promised land these people received, it was pretty good. They had great food. They had largely healthy living as long as they were faithful. They conquered their enemies. It was a good life but it is not worthy to be, to be compared to what God has promised for us who believe in the next age. But we've got to believe. We've got to trust him. We've got to call upon him. 